Hello, Girl Boss Radio listener. This is your host, Sophia Amoruso, and I'm so excited about today's guest. She was until about a week ago. She still is the chief creative officer of Hearst Magazines and former editor in chief of Cosmo, Joanna Cole. So she just made an announcement that. After a very long career at Hearst, she is actually leaving, and we weren't able to talk about this on the podcast, but she has so, so much to share uh, through her long career in publishing. But first, I want to invite you to join the Future of Girl Boss, which is coming, and it's very different from what we've been doing. It's really an extension of everything that we've done at the Girl Boss rallies, but don't want to talk too much about it. I don't want to blow our wad, uh, <laughs> is, uh, we're just calling it the future for now, but you can go sign up to be one of the first to access it at thefuture.girlboss.com. Success. It's such a complicated idea, and yet for so long we've all collectively subscribed to a single definition of the word was likely given to us by a white-haired dude somewhere in a boardroom in the 1960s. And there's nothing wrong with that definition, with the notion of climbing a corporate ladder with a singular focus. But it's time to make space for a few other definitions, for side hustles and well-being and failing forward, and for the idea that success is a wild ride, not the destination at the end of it. Join me for a journey into the lives of women who are redefining success and paving the way for others with grit and grace. I'm Sophia Amoruso, the founder and CEO of Girlboss Media, and this is Girlboss Radio. Joanna Coles is a journalist, entrepreneur, producer, and author. Joanna was born in England and worked in London for many years as a journalist before moving to the United States in 1997. At that time, she worked for The Guardian and for The Times of London as their New York columnist. In 2006, she joined Hearst Magazines as the editor-in-chief of Mary Claire. It was during this time that she first started producing television, working on the Style Network's unscripted show, Running in Heels. In 2012, she was named editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan, the world's largest women's media brand. If you guys don't know that, they have the largest circulation of any of the women's publications. So when you get into Cosmo, it's really exciting. Print is still a very lucrative business. It's not as lucrative as it might once have been, but it's a very important part of a media brand. And it's tangible. It stays. People carry it and use it. You know, they lay it out on their coffee table. They have it by their nightstand as an indication that they are a member of a tribe. She has also served as the executive producer of the unscripted series So Cosmo on E! These days, Joanna is, or was, or is on her way out as the chief content officer of Hearst Magazines, overseeing content and editorial partnerships for 300 magazines globally. I think that it always comes from from the point of view of content, that you have to have a point of view and you have to understand what good content is. And then, to a large extent, the commercial bit follows in terms of finding brands that want to to partner with you. She also sits on the board of directors of Snap Inc. 
is the executive producer of ABC Freeform's The Bold Type, which is loosely based on her life and career, and it's actually pretty good. I watched it. And authored the book Love Rules, which is a guidebook for relationships in the digital age. Joanna was recently described by the New York Times as one of the most powerful people in media. And after going to Cannes Lions, which is the advertising festival in the south of France, where every advertising executive and media executive and content company goes... I saw the events she hosted, and she is the most well-connected woman in media. The exciting thing about media now is that there's so much more of it, and a lot of it's aimed at women. And today, we're so lucky to have Joanna here to share tips for nailing your job interview, the best way to break into the magazine business, and her advice for fellow working mothers. We'll get to our chat with Joanna in just a moment, but first, Maggie Renshaw and I are going to talk all about what's going on here at the Girl Boss offices. Hey, Maggie. Hey. Uh, hey. Hey. So I thought it'd be fun in honor of Joanna coming on the show to talk a little bit about love, maybe not in the digital era, but understanding it. Yeah. We have a piece on the site that talks about the five love languages, which are really important because a lot of times we how we perceive love and also how we give it. It's very different. I read um, I read this book. Oh, you did? I bought it and read it because, mm-hmm. oh, no, actually, my mother, I think my mother emailed it to me or mailed it to mm-hmm. me in the mail. It was pretty enlightening for my relationship. Mm-hmm. It's right? kind of like the Myers-Briggs test of love. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I tell people. Yeah. Or of just relationships in general because it helps decode friendships, um, like relationships between parents and children. Yeah. And everything. Like how you how you receive love because... Mm-hmm. If you give love in a way that it doesn't land for yeah. someone, like I tend to give gifts mm-hmm. and my boyfriend does not give a shit about gifts. Mm-hmm. Like that's not his thing. Like he cares about, I think it's quality time. Okay. So that's much <laughs> less expensive, mm-hmm. but you know, the way you express love isn't necessarily what matters as much as how the people you love receive it and if they feel love. Exactly. Like you could probably still give a gift, but that might be more for you mm-hmm. and then doing something else, too, for them. Yeah, I'm like, hey, isn't this jacket good looking? I would love for you to take me to dinner in this nice jacket. And right. Like, mm, <laughs> and maybe get me a jacket, too. Thanks a lot. But if, for people that are listening that don't know the five love languages, they are words of affirmation, which is essentially saying something like, I love you or you're appreciated, basically being told why. Uh, physical touch, which is... A hug, a kiss, a uh, hand-holding down the street. Humping. Ooh. Humping. Sure, sure. Quality time, which is being together, just being present, putting down your phone, going for a walk. Gifts, which you touched on, um, which is basically just giving something of sorts, like a, a t-shirt, roses, yeah, chocolate. Yeah. I like rose. I think I like gifts. Those are really. But then, if someone is doesn't re- isn't receiving, if they don't get like the gift thing, they think it's like frivolous. So then, sometimes people don't give gifts because that's not the way they receive love, mm-hmm. and they just think it's like some kind of I don't know traditional gender role mm-hmm. kind of garbage to like give you flowers. Not oh. that that's my relationship, mm-hmm. but I think things. I think. We don't always get Mm -hmm. the way the other person... Well, gifts can also be something really, really thoughtful, too, like a scrapbook or 
tickets to a show that that are an hour and a half away, but you know they love that person. Or just, just a like, sweet note. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. yeah, words of affirmation and a gift at the same time. Hello. Hey. Um, and then the last one is acts of service, which is you know doing something for your partner, doing the laundry, or, bring me coffee. Mm-hmm, exactly. Or um, sending them a text and being like, hey, I I know you had a busy night. Do you want me to grab us dinner? Something like that. Oh, I do a lot of that. I'm mm-hmm. like, I go to a business business dinner and I'm like, hey, do you want me to get you a pizza? Oh yeah, he you like do. won't feed himself. <laughs> Anyway. You are really good at that. Where do we... Thank you. Mm -hmm. I like the food. Mm -hmm. So how do we learn more about this, Maggie? So if you want to learn more about this and how to apply it in your life or just in general discovering the languages that that you use or you perceive as special as a moment of love, you can visit girlboss.com and search five love languages. And I think you might need to search the number itself, but I'm not sure. Could come back, come up either way. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Thanks, Maggie. Now get ready to hear from Chief Creative Officer of Hearst Magazine's Joanna Coles. You grew up in England. I did. What was that like? Uh, it was a little depressing. I grew up in the north of England and uh, we constantly had power outages. And this is going to make me sound ancient and I'm really not. But Britain was still recovering from the impact of the Second World War. So actually London was swinging, but in the north of England, we hadn't caught up with that excitement of the 60s. And I couldn't wait to get out. Yeah, I know that feeling. I mean, I grew up in Sacramento, which is like, yeah, it's like there's San Francisco nearby. There's a real city nearby, but... Culturally, it was a real wasteland. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's nice to get out as early as you can. Yeah, I was tantalized by the prospect of the Beatles who were in Liverpool. And then later on, there was Joy Division, which was in Manchester. Oh, my God. But it was all about getting to London. Yeah. And so, but you just before, you did move to London. I moved way. to London. Yeah, I moved to college and then I moved to London. But as a child, you started a magazine. I did. I started a magazine with my uh, best friend who lived next door and we photocopied it and we delivered it regardless of whether or not people were interested uh, and put it through people's mailboxes. What was it called? It was called Your Choice, which was ironic because they had no choice in whether or not they received it. But even then, weirdly, it turns out that when you do covers of magazines, one of the most important words you can use on the on the cover is your because it individualizes it makes the reader think it's about them and that was one of the two words was it a fashion magazine what was no the focus? it was sort of weird ramblings about my observations it was a sort of collection of poems we liked some quite bad drawings and sort of very short stories do you still have copies do you know I don't think I do but I did send a copy to the queen of England and I eventually got a letter back from her maiden waiting saying that she loved it and was looking forward to further issues And I do have a copy of that letter. She might still have a copy. Oh, interesting. (laughs) She might still have a copy. I wonder if maybe she read it and felt like she could read and toss. She might still have a copy, but I do have the letter she sent me. So what was your first job? My first job was in a newsagent selling sweets and magazines. Selling sweets. What's yeah. a sweet? Well, sweet is candy. So we, I would sell huge yeah. amounts of Cadbury's and then lots of magazines, including the odd porno magazine. Oh, wow. What was the name of that porno magazine? Uh, it was it was either Playboy or Penthouse at okay. that stage. 
But I remember selling them and the men would buy them and then put them in a newspaper. And I would always make a point of pulling it out of the newspaper when they were purchasing it. It wasn't like they were trying to steal it, but they were embarrassed of it. And I felt Uh, like I'm going to just acknowledge that you're buying a porn magazine. Yeah, own it. Yeah. So you went to university. I did. In England. Yes. What did you study? What was that like? I studied English and American literature. I had an absolute blast because really all I did was read novels from the last hundred years. So I spent a lot of time reading Hemingway, Scott Fitzgerald, William Faulkner. I did a little bit of James Fenimore Cooper, but I tried to do as little old stuff as I could. But it was a great lens through which to understand America. And when I applied for American citizenship, uh, it became one of the things that showed I'd had a long-stand interest in America. Right out of college, Joanna was able to get a job at a magazine. And a couple of years after that, she got a job as a newspaper reporter. These jobs are typically highly coveted and rarely come up right after school. So I asked Joanna, how was she able to get those jobs right after college? Well, the Spectator job was advertised and I applied for it and went through endless numbers of interviews. And it was a really fun place to work. And my first reporting job was at a magazine called, oh, well, it was at a newspaper called The Daily Telegraph, which at the time I think was actually the biggest newspaper in the world. It had an enormous circulation, or the, the biggest broadsheet newspaper in the world. And there I ended up as the night news editor, which meant I had to go in at 6 p.m. and I worked through till 3 a.m. And you would call people and raise them from their beds to send them on stories. So the last the last person people wanted to hear from was me because I'd either be interrupting their dinner or I'd be interrupting their sleep saying, oh, listen, there's a story you've got to go and check it out. What kind of interview skills? I mean, what do you think it is about you that got you those jobs? Were were there qualities that you know that you had or that you recommend to our listeners who may be looking for a job? I mean, you've also hired a ton of people, so you know whether it's your early career or the the women that you've hired, What do you think the best qualities are for someone looking for a job? Definitely enthusiasm about the place. I think do your research before you go for the interview so you are able to talk about it knowledgeably. I was always astonished when I would interview people and it was clear they'd never bothered to read the things that I was working for. they don't know who you are. Right, and they're they're like kind of, what am I doing here? And that would piss me off. Um, So I think research the company research where the company is trying to go so you can speak to the future. Uh, Think about your skills so you can talk about them frankly. They may ask you that bullshit question, what do you think your weaknesses are? Which I've never asked in an interview. But if they do, have some weaknesses that you can address, which in fact really a strengths. I don't like it when people say, I'm, I just, you know, I, I'm workaholic or like, you know, I'm just, you know, the qualities that might look, I mean, not that we hired workaholics, but some people. Or they, or they go, oh, I'm a perfectionist. Everything has to be perfect. And you're like, well, that would be great, but that's not a weakness. Yes. Well, I mean, it would be very interesting to see how one would react if someone said, well, I'm late all the time, Mm. because that's not a very attractive weakness. So you don't want to be too frank. Joanna has interviewed countless job candidates during her vast career. She revealed her least favorite interview moment, why she found it so off-putting and some tips on how you can avoid moments like this in your search for a job. 
I'll tell you one thing that somebody did in an interview which really freaked me out when I was interviewing them. They came in and I was sitting on a sofa with a sort of table in front of me and this woman came in with an enormous Hermes Birkin bag and she just put it down on the table in front of me and I almost wanted to address the questions to the bag (laughs) and I couldn't understand why, A, if she had this $15,000 bag, she needed the job that I had on offer because it wasn't going to pay that kind of money. It was just a very odd behaviour. Yeah, if you come in looking too well off and it's probably not fair on the hiring manager's end to judge that, but when you're that hiring manager and you're working so hard and someone comes in who hasn't gotten to the place in their career that you have and you can't even afford that bag, it's hard not to resent it. And you do question, do you actually need a job? Because when you need a job, you tend to be more committed, right? You don't have the choices of just being, having the luxury of taking whatever job just you know that is fun yeah and it was like she'd bought the Birkin in to prove something to me and if she put it down on the side of her chair I wouldn't have probably noticed it but the fact it squatted throughout the interview Mm -hmm. was very odd so what magazine were you at when that was happening do you think she did that because she wanted to impress you with her fashion prowess sort of fashion savvy uh maybe maybe at the time I was at Marie Claire and um it's possible that that's what she wanted to do It, it was just an odd rather aggressive gesture. Joanna has worked at multiple women's publications, and though each publication is under the same umbrella, the culture and audience they serve can be quite different. She shared the difference between working at Mary Claire versus working at Cosmo and what different audience each serves. What's interesting is that for you as a consumer of magazines, they all sort of morph into one and actually if you're a customer it doesn't really matter who publishes them what you're buying is the title uh at marie claire it was very much focused on women of the world so we had a lot of very intriguing stories about women in the developing world and you know we would find villages where there were only women living or villages where every time a woman had a period she had to leave the village and live in a special hut uh, or villages where every time a girl had a period she couldn't go to school for a week Uh, so these kind of very challenging situations for women to grow up in that women in the west find hard to comprehend That was very much Marie Claire's sort of unique positioning. Cosmo, much more about America and much more kind of like your cheerful big sister bringing you on into the world and telling you stuff that your mum doesn't want you to know. And there's a certain point where you got into television production while you were at Marie Claire? Yeah, when I was at Marie Claire, we did a show called Running in Heels, which was really about the fun of working at a magazine. And then when I was at Cosmo, we did So Cosmo and we also launched... Um, the Bold Type, which is on Freeform, and we've just begun shooting our third series. Wow, yeah, I've watched it. I love it. It's fun, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. It's really fun. And, and the marketing sort of, has been very well done. The marketing is really, really exciting. We were absolutely thrilled, and I loved, and it's very much uh, apropos of Girl Boss. Uh, I'm a boss bitch, not a bitch boss, or <laughs> whatever it is. Boss. I can't remember it. Yeah, absolutely. It's all about Girl Boss. <laughs> I'm curious, you know. Uh, Cosmopolitan magazine is one of the most commercial magazines. And, you know, we all come up in our careers sometimes thinking like, oh, my gosh, I'm just going to be creative all the time and marrying 
our personal interests or our creative aspirations with commercial opportunities, which are often the things that can pay for that Birkin bag. How have you, you know, married your creative ambitions with making sure that those are aligned with the commercial opportunity, with the, you know, impetus to maintain a commercial a commercial magazine? Well, it's a great question and it's very challenged in today's media environment because there are all sorts of competitors coming from nowhere. You're one, you're providing great content for people. Um, I think... That's very flattering. uh, Well, but the exciting thing about media now is that there's so much more of it and a lot of it's aimed at women. And obviously that's the space that Cosmo led for a long time and it has many more challenges now, largely online. Um, So it's an interesting, challenging uh, environment and your question is a a great one. And I think uh, when you meet designers, fashion designers, the ones that I've always felt most interesting were the ones that were able to marry creativity and commerce. So you look at someone like Michael Kors, you look at Marc Jacobs, uh, you look at the designers that have gone, I mean, Virgil Abloh now at at Louis Vuitton, Mm -hmm. and the extraordinary ability to be able to produce something that is different and new and creative and has an audience, and an audience that will pay for it, is really exciting. And, um, you know, it's what you wake up every morning thinking about doing. I think that it always comes from from the point of view of content that you have to have a point of view and you have to understand what good content is and then to a large extent the commercial bit follows in terms of finding brands that want to to partner with you be it in advertising or sponsored uh, content or events which you and I have done together Mm -hmm. I launched a series of conferences at Cosmo and we were thrilled to have you as one of our very first speakers at the Lincoln Centre where we had 3,000 young women who came uh, to be inspired and I think it changed a lot of lives that first weekend that we did with our Fun Fearless conference so it's constantly uphill work marrying the creative with the commerce because there are so many more creators now than there used to be. But it's also exciting. When you get it right, it's wonderful. When you sell a great program, it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Who are the, you know, young women who have come up from maybe an internship or really kind of risen through the ranks at Hearst? What are the qualities that they've had that you've taken note of once they have figured out how to ace that interview? Well, it's funny. I was trying to get hold of someone today who I hired who um, had done a... I remember hiring her as a junior editor and I was intrigued by her resume because she'd done a... uh, her. Univers- or her college dissertation was on anorexia in the novels of the Bronte sisters, which I was just blown away by the idea of that. And she was just this incredibly type A girl who just everything she did was buttoned up. Everything she came in, she over-researched, she over-presented, she was fantastic. And I'm trying to track her down right now. You know, I look for people that can do the job, who are enthusiastic, who don't create drama. I don't like working with people who create unnecessary drama. I don't have the energy for it. And I want the energy to go into the creativity, not the sort of personal drama around it. And I like a variety of people. I uh, have lots of weaknesses, so I'm always trying to hire people that will help me look better. And I have people that I like that have good positive energy. 
There seems to be an assumption that the women who come to work at magazines such as Cosmo and Marie Claire have a certain pedigree, including going to a top college and being part of the New York City elite, I don't know, having parents who can, with friends or whatever. I, I feel like I've seen them, but maybe that's not the case. And therefore I wondered, as not one of those women, did Joanna have any examples of past hires who didn't have that pedigree? And if so, what did their background look like? And I think that's a trope in the culture that you have to have a private income to work at a fashion magazine. Now, does a fashion magazine play the same as Wall Street or pay the same as big tech? No, of course not. But it's a great place for creative people. And if I tell you that the he- uh, one of the uh, celebrity bookers at Hearst is a young man who left Russia when he was 13, went to Italy, learned Italian, and then three months after he'd learned Italian and become fluent in it, his mother said, oh, actually, we're not staying in Italy. We're moving to uh, New York. He moved to New York, taught himself English from watching Seinfeld and I Love Lucy. Wow. Uh, and now he's booking all Hearst celebrities. Uh, didn't go to college, is one of the most effective weapons we have in finding the best celebrities. You know, when Madonna's got a new album out, she calls him and wants him to hear it, uh, you know, in one of her first five people. Uh, So we're always looking for people like that that bring something extra to the table that aren't cookie cutter, you know, prep school, Ivy League kids. There are some of those because some of them bring a lot to the table too. But you want a mix. Um, One of my favourite hires in our fashion department is Tiffany Reed, who grew up in the Bronx. And Sunday mornings was when her family put their finery on and went to church. And every day in the office, you would feel like she was reliving that moment of going to church in her best outfits. She puts outfits together absolutely brilliantly. She's a wonderful, wonderful uh, member of the fashion team. The fashion team is led by Aya Kanai, who couldn't have a better fashion pedigree. Her parents worked for Issey Mayaki, both of them. Um, She's half Japanese and she went to Oberlin. So you want want an entire mix to represent the audience that you're trying to reach. And speaking of maybe not having that pedigree or or showing up uh, earlier in your career, not having the style that can really impress. And, you know, for me, my style really evolved from the time I started Nasty Yell. Oh, my God. Like, I look, I Google myself, and it's just terrifying. Can taste be acquired? I think taste is a reflection of confidence, and confidence can be acquired. And confidence comes through experience, and it comes through success, and it comes through self-knowledge and self-awareness. And I think that's probably, when you look back at pictures of your and you cringe, all of us do that, what you're cringing at is maybe not so much actually what you were wearing or how you had your hair done, but what that said about what you were going through at the time. Mm -hmm. And if it's not where you were feeling comfortable, that's actually, I think, what you're reacting to. You've had a really long career at Hearst. How long have you been at Hearst? Well, I've been at Hearst 12 years. And Have you had many? Do you feel like it's possible to have many careers within a single organization? Yes, I do. I certainly have felt that. I started as the editor-in-chief of Marie Claire. Then I moved to Cosmo. Then they created a new role for me as chief content officer. And I think those have been three distinct jobs. But within those jobs, they all had different verticals, if you like, within them. So we were doing television, we were doing web series, we were doing Snapchat, we were doing podcasts, we were creating mini media 
empires within each brand. And when I became chief content officer, I was trying to help other brands do that too. How do you stay up to speed on all of the innovations that are happening? Obviously, at a point it was Snapchat. They're constantly emerging new channels to create content and surface content and create revenue. And it can be hard. It can be hard to keep up for anybody uh, because there's so many places to be creating content. Are there publications that you read? Are there you know, innovation experts at your company? Uh, is it something that you seek out personally? Do you surround yourself with, you know, I mean, for me, I'm like 34 and that's, you know, relatively young, but still I'm not out at shows. I'm not going to, I'm not on the ground with culture anymore in the same way that I once was. How do you stay there? How do you keep evolving in that way? Well, I talk to people a lot. So what you're trying to do is get information that not everybody else has. So I read the same as everybody else. You know, I look at the Wall Street Journal, I look at the New York Times, I look at Recode. I'm I'm like a whale sucking up plankton. But what I really do is talk to people. And when you're having one-on-one conversations, those aren't being amplified across media. So you're trying to get information that not everybody else has because that's the added value. Most of us are familiar with the Hearst name and Hearst family to a certain context, but I was curious to hear more of the details of what the Hearst company actually does. So I asked Joanna, for those of us who don't know, what exactly is the Hearst company and what sorts of titles are currently under the Hearst banner? The magazine titles under the Hearst banner are are magazines that you would know incredibly well, Harper's Bazaar, Elle, Marie Claire, Cosmo, Good Housekeeping, Elle, Elle Decor, um, Veranda, House Beautiful, Food Network Magazine, HGTV Magazine. Most recently, we launched Pioneer Woman from Reed Drummond and Airbnb Magazine. Uh, We have Esquire, we have Popular Mechanics. So we have a very wide, diverse group of magazines. And the company itself is diversified in all sorts of ways. We uh, own half of A&E, which is Lifetime and the History Channels, as well as A&E itself. We have a big investment in ESPN. We have a lot of investments in health. Yeah, great investment. Thank goodness for ESPN. You know, there's the ebb and flow of all the investments we have. We have a lot of investments in tech and in data. I mean, they talk about data as being the new oil. We have a lot of investments in health data, in travel data. Uh, So it's a very well diversified company. We have so much more with Joanna coming up. But first, I want to talk a little about ShipStation. Mm, My favorite. ShipStation's our favorite. Because we have so many entrepreneurs, side hustlers, small business owners, whatever Mm -hmm. you consider yourself, listening to Girl Boss Radio, which is why ShipStation is so important. It is the fastest and easiest way to manage and ship your orders all from one place. I wish I had this when I was an eBay seller, when I was a small business owner. It gets much more complicated after that. Uh, Be careful what you wish for. (laughs) Sometimes it's nice to have a small business and manage your lifestyle. (laughs) And speaking of managing your lifestyle, ShipStation makes that possible. Uh, They work with Shopify, Squarespace, Mm -hmm. Etsy, and over 75 other popular selling channels. And you can manage it from any device, even from your phone. And they create labels for all the top carriers, including USPS, FedEx, and UPS. It's super simple. You'll ship more with less time and with the best rates available. So you don't have to go on three different websites to figure out 
And Maggie, we, we use it here, right? We use it all the time. We're shipping things day day by day, hour by hour, um, and it can be really hard to track things um, just due to human error. You know, you can be as specific and particular about things, but there's so many labels that you end up sometimes accidentally m- messing things up or mixing them up. So ShipStation makes it so easy because their labels are so detailed. They have exactly what you need to ship. And if you're selling with Shopify or Squarespace or any of these selling channels, it literally just sucks in the information that you're customer types in for their checkout yep. instead of you having to redo it. Exactly. So Yeah. Mm-hmm. Human error. Mm-hmm. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs> thanks, but no thanks. Right now, try ShipStation free for 30 days and get an additional month free only if you use our promo code GIRLBOSS. So don't wait. Go to ShipStation.com and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GIRLBOSS. That's ShipStation.com. Enter GIRLBOSS. ShipStation. Make Make ship ship happen. We have so much more with Joanna coming up, but first let's talk a little bit about Skillshare. We all like to learn here. We love it. Don't we? And if you don't know, Skillshare is an online learning platform with over 20,000 classes in business, marketing, technology, design, and more. And those are all things that we care about here at Girlboss. And I know if you're listening, you care about too. So there's a bunch of different classes, and mm-hmm. you've taken a few, right, Maggie? Yeah, I'm still taking one on how to use my camera. Just got a Canon, and there are a lot of settings that are very tricky, and if you just don't know the camera, you you don't know how to use it properly. So it's been really helpful in expanding and just making my pictures turn out 10 times better. If not, I would just point and shoot and be like, I think I probably don't need a fancy camera for that. And you can get as every day or as deep as you mm-hmm. want in what you want to know. I mean, data science, like Ooh. data science, which is like actually a really important career in tomorrow's today's world. Mm-hmm. Web development, again, we get to control our fates if we know how to develop things on the web. There's an That's increasing true. number of positions. We need more women in technology and Skillshare can help us get there. <laughs> So join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for our listeners. Get two months of Skillshare for just 99 cents. That's right. Skillshare is offering Girlboss listeners two months of unlimited access to over 20,000 classes for just 99 cents. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash Girlboss. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash Girlboss to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash Girlboss. Now let's get back to our interview with Joanna Coles. For our listeners who don't understand what your role really is, a chief content officer across all of Hearst is such a huge role. What What is your day-to-day like? What is it that you're overseeing and how do you infuse in such a large organization your point of view into the content across all of these publications? Well, I'm less trying to infuse my own point of view than to try and embed in the brands. One of the other brands we do is Oprah magazine. So you spend time with the different editors trying to encourage them to think about their brand as more than just print and digital, but what are the other iterations? What is the conference series? What is the live experience around that brand? Uh, What is the podcast? Who is the talent within that universe and how can you amplify that talent? Uh, So I spend some time doing that. I spend a lot of time thinking of new projects. We're going to launch four uh, new print products uh, this quarter and the beginning of 
well, actually fourth quarter this year, first quarter 2019, uh, which I've really set up and which I'm excited by. And that's taken some time. So I have sort of a lot of urgent day-to-day stuff and often dealing with advertisers and clients and partnerships and branded and native content, coming up with ideas for that, uh, working with the editors and then thinking longer term about what are uh, what would good partnerships be to launch new magazines. Mm-hmm. Should we do a Girl Boss magazine? We should absolutely do a Girl Boss magazine. And what would that look like? Because launching a magazine now doesn't have to look like what it was mm-hmm. four years ago or even two years ago. Would you be on the cover of every magazine? Think about how Oprah's done that with Oprah magazine. Mm-hmm. Oprah magazine's made, made made more than a billion dollars in advertising since it started 16 years ago. I'm not promising that for Girl Boss, but uh, print is still a very lucrative business. Yeah. It's not as lucrative as it might once have been, but it's a very important part of a media brand. And it's tangible. It stays. People carry it and use it. You know, they lay it out on their coffee table. They have it by their nightstand as an indication that they are a member of a tribe. It's a physical thing outside of your phone. It's a legacy item. It's really hard for things that are digital to become wow a legacy and with my book well you don't keep you don't keep digital right digital is very ephemeral and it might last not even 90 seconds and the average person scrolls through 304 feet which is the same height as the uh, Statue of Liberty every day and that's just on Facebook so if you think about that you're not taking in that material you're scrolling that material which is a different thing and I think too much as I absolutely love my smartphone and I don't like to be parted from it at any point I also know that if I've spent an hour on it or an hour and a half on it if you're having your roots done which I do because I've got very platinum hair and it needs to be retouched every sort of uh, seven or eight weeks um, you don't feel calmer at the end of that you feel a little listless and jangly and like where's the next thing coming from and actually if you can write through the panic of being disconnected for 30 seconds and disappear into a magazine or a book, you, I think, appreciate the sense of calm, the restorative feelings that it gives you. And I think you take in the material in a better way. It's kind of the only time. I mean, it's it's a way of being alone. It's a way of in being a way alone. you can't do online. Yeah. So... For our listeners who may not be familiar with this term, businesses talk a lot about building moats, which is something I haven't necessarily figured out how to do. It will be you know, important to Girl Boss as we build our business, and there's so much competing content out there. How do you think about building a moat? Is that a term you even use? But to differentiate everything that you're doing from the vast amount of content that's being created. I mean, a moat is really set up. I mean, if you think of old English castles, and obviously I grew up in England, the moat was this sort of fabulous sort of waterway around the castle that would protect you from marauders and keep your people safe. And you do that by being better than anybody else. And what was exciting about working at both Marie Claire and Cosmo was that we were better. I had better editors. We produced better content. We had better ideas. It's all about having better ideas. And actually, Richard Plepler, who's the CEO of of HBO, has a very good phrase, which I use all the time. More isn't better. 
better is better. And you have to push people to have good ideas. You have to find the best people, which is always the essence of any good business. You have to find the talent. And you have to make sure that the talent is fed and watered and is able to access their ideas. And I think for a creative enterprise like yours or mine, you also want people to be able to spend some time on their own. And you want to encourage them to get out from the digital world where everybody else is living and find things that aren't yeah. accessible it to everybody else. It can be a race else. to the middle or the bottom when yeah. you're considering everything else that's out there and aren't finding inspiration of your own in the world. Right. One thing that's incredibly difficult in business is figuring out how to scale and specifically how to scale so that everything that you're creating reflects the brand and values of your business. That's that's hard when other people are doing the work for you when it extends beyond your fingertips. How do you make sure that it represents your vision and the vision of the brand itself? So I was lucky to hear Joanna's tips for how to maintain a singular brand voice among many employees while scaling a business. I think the best thing you can do is be clear as a boss so people understand your expectations and they understand what the brand, for want of a better word, is stands for. And that really is about you explaining it to them and constantly iterating what that is so it feels fresh and modern and then getting out of their way. And obviously you have to keep an eye on what people are doing but you have to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're going to do it as well as they can. And then, you know, you want to create an environment where people aren't afraid of feedback and aren't going to take um, suggestions personally as opposed to seriously. You're on the board at Snapchat. That's a really big deal. Why did you decide to join the Snapchat board? And what, what has that been like? For you? Well, it's been enormous fun. It's been incredibly educational for me. I joined because I love the people. I love the two co-founders, Evan Spiegel and Bobby Murphy. They're incredibly stimulating, interesting, demanding, uh, creative spirits. And I love Snap. I love the fact that it's a social media where you're not, or I mean, we're supposed to say it's a camera company and it is a camera company, but it's a communicative environment which isn't judged by anybody else so I love the fact that nobody's liking what I'm putting out there I love the fact that I can communicate with friends and nobody's judging it it's a very intimate form of communication Mm -hmm. and I love the fact that you can just send a picture of yourself first thing in the morning when you've not got your lenses in and you look dreadful and it's not going to be judged by everybody I mean there are clearly many many ways you can communicate now that still to me feels the most authentic way to communicate so you're executive producing now a show you said you're going into the third season of the bold type what yes now, what network is that on it's on freeform okay. you can get it on hulu freeform and eventually I hope netflix There's a woman named Laura Hardin who plays a character that's loosely based on you. How did that come about? What's that been like having? I mean, I've had someone represent me actually almost, you know, actually, actually representing me on a show, which can be kind of disorienting. 
Um, what's that been like for you? Oh, it's been fun. Melora Hardin is a wonderful actress. Weirdly, I had become obsessed by her when she played Tammy in Transparent. I thought she was brilliant. She got an Emmy nomination for it. And weirdly, she had hair just like mine, which is bleached within an inch of its life. And um, she was this crazy character getting increasingly out of control on Transparent. And I thought she played it absolutely brilliantly. It was such a good show. I'd never seen a character like that on television. So when they told me, when Freeform told me um, that she was in line to play me. I literally couldn't believe it. I was beyond excited. I was fizzing out of control. I really felt she nailed the character. It's loosely inspired by me. It's not exactly me. And we wanted to give the team as much creative freedom as they needed. But essentially the setup is uh, what... I had always intended for the show, which is that it's this exciting working environment for young women, very much based when I started. And the women I was working with, we all became best friends. We loved working together. We were this little cabal of women in a much bigger sea of men. Uh, We had enormous fun. I got my best friends out of those early working days. I'm still in touch with them. Uh, You know, I'm godmother to their kids and vice versa. We all showed up for each other's weddings. Um... And I wanted a female boss who represented female bosses I'd had, who wasn't a bitch, who was thrilled to mentor younger women who were working hard and who was different to the male bosses I had, brought different skills to it. And I think Melora, uh, through the character of Jacqueline, really represents that. And season three is very nuanced. She gets all sorts of threats uh, to her status and you see her wrestling through them in a very sort of humane and I hope realistic way. And I love the fact that the show has all sorts of anecdotes from my from my diaries as well as the creative work from the team. There's a big team of 10 writers on it uh, led by Amanda Lasher this, this and next season and Sarah Watson for the first season and they brought tremendous... Uh, excitement and humanity to to the roles and I think that's why it's hit a nerve I mean the social media around the show when it's on and afterwards people debating the storylines and the plot lines and arguing about the characters has been unbelievably exciting I've never seen such complex women on a network television show oh my god thank you for saying that I want to use that I'm I'm immediately going to tweet that out because Mm. that was the goal they're not supposed to be caricatures and you know one of the shows that I'm fascinated by and represents for me A lot of why we created The Bold Type is Modern Family, which I think is an absolutely brilliantly written show. But there is nothing modern about it when it comes to its depiction of women. It's three families. What was modern about it was that they had two gay men living together who adopted some children. And that at the time was modern. But the depiction of the two wives are the oldest tropes in the book. And I was fascinated by the fact that it could call itself Modern Family when it didn't feel remotely modern to me and there are so well, then that got me thinking about where are the role models for women on television you see almost no working women role models where the women succeed so every, you know you see firemen you see policemen you see doctors who are highly competent heroic men when the women have these jobs they're either sleeping with people in the environment or they're complete ditzes or their success is entirely by accident and what we decided to was to drive into the ambition of young women for the bold type and highlight it. Joanna recently wrote a book called Love Rules about how to find love in the digital age. She revealed a little bit about her book and tips for girl bosses looking for love in 2018. 
I wrote a book called Love Rules, which is really about how to find a real relationship in a world that I think is increasingly digital and people place as much value on digital communication um, as real communication. And yet it should very much be that real communication, i.e. sitting with someone or, or spending time with someone in real life, I think is much more valuable. How can we find love in 2018? Well, it's everywhere, right? It's hiding in plain sight. It's the the most fun thing to find. And I felt that when I was talking to women, especially at Cosmo and Marie Claire, and I go out to college campuses a lot and talk to young women's business groups, that people had stopped talking about love and they were talking about hookups and they were talking about not having relationships. And they felt, I think a lot of women I, I talked to felt that they were competing with porn and that if they didn't put out at the end of the evening, the guy would go back. And because of the ubiquity of, of porn on people's smartphones now that somehow the guy would be satisfied and didn't really need to do the work of creating a relationship where you could have great, healthy, exciting sex. Uh, so that's really why I, I wrote the book. But love is hiding everywhere. You have to be open to it. You have to be open to giving and listening to people. And we live in a very individualistic culture, I think, at the moment, which is all about the self. Our communities, I think, are really breaking down and changing. And uh, I was talking to Larry Wilmore yesterday and he came up with a great phrase. He said, there's so much public solitude. And we know that there's an epic of, of uh, you know, an epidemic of loneliness. Britain just appointed its first loneliness minister. And these devices, which were supposed to connect us and in many ways do connect us, can also make us feel more isolated. So it's being aware of that and compensating for it. So you have two kids. You've built your career with kids. Uh do you have any advice for a working mom who's as ambitious as you are? Well, I don't think of myself as being ambitious. I think of myself as being curious and one thing leads to another. And I think of, I have a lot of energy and I have a lot of curiosity. And so I love doing new things. And so that creates its own momentum. So I don't think it's necessarily about being ambitious as much as it is wanting to get engaged and involved in something that you are really curious about. And it might be medicine, it could be tech, it could be science, it could be education, uh, it could be any of it. I think the idea of balance is one that we're supposed to be searching for. And I've never found any balance. I think you have to embrace the chaos and be prepared for the unexpected and be flexible. And the thing I'm not very good at doing is listening to what my children are actually trying to tell me and be available for what they want to do because it's often not what I want to do and understanding the sort of give and take that you need with that. I have a hugely uh, supportive husband who has been a brilliant dad to the kids uh, and is also very flexible and he uh, we have passed the baton back and forth in terms of uh, one or other of us earning more at any one time and one or other of us spending more time with the kids. And that's essential, I think. Uh, and much harder if you're doing this as a single parent and you really want to then build a big network around you of people. Uh, I had a big, big network and still do of working mums who, uh, you know, we could pick up the slack if someone was really doing a huge project or 
uh, was dealing with a medical issue or their kids were or they had to be out of town. So that's incredibly important, especially when the kids are younger. And um, you have to want it. I mean, I can't imagine my life without having had children. It was the single best decision I ever made. The, the two days that I gave birth are the best days of my life. I never understand it when people say the day they got married was the best day because you think, how could that possibly be better than the day that you gave birth? I mean, it's, you know, it's an unholy mess giving birth, but it is the most exciting thing. And then, you know, the most exciting thing I feel I've ever created is the relationship between my two sons who are the best of friends and it's just delightful to watch them going off into the world and it's terrifying and um, hilarious in equal measure. But the friendship that they've created between themselves is, I hope, you know, A, I hope it lasts and I'm sure it will, but it's one of the things that I get most satisfaction from. And I would really, really urge young women, uh, if they think they want children, to don't hesitate because it's, you know, it's a very grounding, exciting, wonderful thing to do. And one thing a lot of people don't talk about, and just this is just an aside and something that I've struggled with and uh, something with that there's a lot of stigma around. And um, I would say it's better earlier rather than later to just go get a blood test find out where you are with your fertility just be educated doesn't mean you need to do anything about it but just to know where you are and I have something called advanced maternal age which is like I'm 34 but there's like not a lot of eggs left so I've just been trying to like harvest what's there and put them on ice and it's a lot um but if you if you do want to have that, if you know, there's so many options for us to be able to delay that and prioritize our careers and still have kids. In I mean, in LA, there's no one having kids at 34. Everybody's 38 or 40 years old. It's just how things are with women being. Well, I I have a chapter in Love Rules about this, and I do think that it's a mistake for us to allow women to think that it's going to be easy having kids at 40. It may be easy. It may be not easy. And the odds are, frankly, stacked against you. And the odds are stacked against you the minute you start having IVF. And I do think that the fertility industry has sold women to a large extent a false bill of goods in that by the time you've got to having IVF, you're having issues already. So it's going to be more difficult. And just because you're having IVF doesn't mean it's going to work. Actually, the numbers are stacked against you. How are the numbers stacked against you? You're scaring me. Well, I want to be, I want to be, I mean, read the book because I've got the very specific numbers in there according to what the issues are and what your age is. But it gets harder the older you are. Yeah. The earlier you freeze your eggs, you get to like... Ideally, you should freeze your eggs at 21. Wow. And if you're freezing your eggs at 38, you will be lucky if they are all okay. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. And it's better to to freeze your eggs at 38 than 44. Um, But at 44, you're basically throwing your money away. And Mm -hmm. that's what people don't tell you. The quality of your eggs decreases as you get older. Yeah, of course. Of course. You can really be a vampire and freeze your eggs at 30 and use these healthy younger eggs. Or 21, um, later into your 30s, um, even though there are more complications with getting pregnant in your late 30s or early 40s. 
Yeah, and listen, a lot of this depends on have you found someone that you want to have children with? And if you haven't, are you okay with having children on your own? Can you build a framework that that uh, works for your life? And I do think that there are many, many alternatives to the nuclear family, which are incredibly exciting to explore. Do you want to have a kid with a best friend? Do you want to have a kid with a group of you? Um, we don't have to live in nuclear families to have happy, successful lives. Absolutely not. But I do think that you don't want to wake up at 45 desperately trying to have a child having ignored the conversation with yourself about about doing this and one in five women now choose not to have children and that's absolutely fine if you choose to be childless and that's absolutely your choice then great you can have a fantastic single life you can have a fantastic life in a relationship without having children but if you think you want children you really don't want to wake up at 45 and and then think oh I'm going to start trying to have a baby now because you really are on an uphill path. I think my poodles are here. There's three of them. Well, they sound they sound very they excited. They sound like to be seagulls. Here. And I swear a foghorn drove by a little earlier. Um, I think that was a sign of a police car, and they found out where I, I am, and they're that. looking for me. Oh, so so there's a couple questions I ask everybody who comes on Girl Boss Radio, and we. Oh no! I think your dogs want to be on the podcast. I think. Oh, they're so sweet. For our listeners, um, we just invited three of my poodles. Oh my god! How many poodles do you have? Just three. Oh, you've got three <laughs> out of like, what, seventeen. Oh, look at this one's just jumped on my lap. He's so sweet. Before she left, Joanna revealed her most recent girl boss moment. And remember, at this point in the interview, we had my poodles running around the studio. So if you hear some noises, it's because there's a garden of poodles, like a bouquet that has become a garden, yelping around because they're so excited to be here on our pink carpet in the Girl Boss studio. Anyway, that's my most recent Girl Boss, but Joanna's is right here. I think probably my most Girl Boss moment is still to come. So I would say stay tuned for that, but it might come soon. Ooh, that's exciting. And another thing we talk about a lot here is success, which is, you know, it's not a straight line. It's a new era where the paradigm of what success is just being financial uh, or career, um, that there's such an intersection of work and personal life that makes us feel successful. What does success mean to you? I don't think about success very much. It's not something I really spend any time thinking about what I'm trying to spend time thinking about is what do I want to do next what is exciting what's new what aren't I doing that I should be doing you know what are the moments that I enjoy they're moments when you have an idea and you're able to activate it and when I'm spending time with people who I love talking to and I find stimulating and, and interesting. Uh, and they might be young people with lots of good ideas and talking about things I've never heard of and listening to music that I've never heard of. Or they could be older, much more successful, traditionally successful people who've got a lot of experience to offer. But I, it's not something I ever think about. There's dolphins in the podcast. There's too. dolphins in the podcast. They, they, I wish people could see these adorable little oh dogs. Oh, God, you guys. I think they're all quite jealous of each other. So we've got one black and white poodle looking longingly at the black and white poodle who's on your knee. They're all making the same sound at the same time. Okay. I think what they're asking in doggy language is, which is your favorite? Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. For coming on Girlboss Radio. And stay tuned for my next Girlboss moment. 
Thank you so much for joining us on Girlboss Radio today. Remember, if you want to see what the future looks like, go to thefuture.girlboss.com. Enter your email address. Prefer a few friends. We'll love you for it. Subscribe, rate, and review. So that's important. Uh, We should probably talk about that at the top of the podcast, but it's really important for you to subscribe and to review the podcast because it means that we'll get ranked in, you know, among iTunes and the very few women's business podcasts that are out there. And that's important for all of us. And be sure to check out our newest podcast, which is, I mean, I don't know what you'd call it. It's like a reality show of mental health with one of the funniest women in the world, Jen Gotch, the founder of Bando. So the show is called Jen Gotch is OK Sometimes. And uh, all right, guys, see you next week.